Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 29 of the Essential X Lapsed, where, uh, as always, I am reporting in from the squeaky chair, which is uh, getting squeakier by the day. I'm going to need to uh, hurl this thing out a nearby window pretty soon because it's very, very annoying, <laughs> especially when I go to edit these episodes and I hear like every third or fourth word, and I'm sure that's not a pleasant experience for the listeners as well. So, uh, yeah, going to be trying to pick out a new chair pretty soon here. But uh, today, we're going to be going off the beaten path. We're not going to be discussing the next issue of X-Men, which, after going through issue 21, might be a relief to some of you. It's uh, certainly a relief to me. Uh, that was not that was not the funnest issue to go through. That was uh, kind of a mess of an issue. And uh, especially after going through it two, three, four times to uh, put together the notes, it was uh, one I don't think I ever need to see again. So this is going to be a uh, little bit of a break. And today we're going to be kicking off a trilogy of episodes, and it is the Mentolo Trilogy. And, uh, well, you might be raising an eyebrow, or furrowing both eyebrows at that. Uh, why in the hell would we dedicate so much time to Mentolo? I mean, Mentolo's barely an X-Men character as it is, right? I mean, we do know him from, you know, current year X stuff. He is part of the S.W.O.R.D. Volume 2 cast, right? He has his think tank, he reports to Abigail Brand. He is a mutant, and he has a Krakoan citizenship. So that might just make him X enough to cover. And uh, I, I only came to this deduction using the most scientific of methods, and that was basically asking people on social media what they thought about me covering uh, the Mentolo <laughs> introduction story here. And I got a mixture of answers. I uh, I don't know what I was expecting. I, I think I was expecting a slam dunk either for or against, and uh, I got more of a mixture in responses here. Some of the main, you know, don't cover this answers were basically that Mentolo sucks. <laughs> and, well, yeah, kinda. He does. Um, but some of the responses that actually inspired me to go through with it were more along the lines of uh, folks expressing, like, literal surprise that Mentolo didn't first appear in an X-Men comic. And uh, that he isn't really such an X-Men character. He is a mutant, of course, so he is under our purview insofar as, you know, essential X-Labs is concerned. But uh, he's certainly not one that looms large, right? And you guys know how I always joke that we're uh, fake-ass comics historians here on this program, but, you know, that is only a joke. I, I feel like we are, you know, uh, I, I say it to be self-depreciating and uh, to take a little bit of the piss out of it, but uh, we all do care about comics history. I mean, if you're listening to a show where we're going to be talking about an obscure Silver Age story, you're probably at least passively interested in Silver Age comics and the history of comics. So... Here we are, talking about Mentolo, a character that not all of us know a whole heck of a lot about. I mean, I didn't know anything about him until not too long ago myself. Mostly because I always conflated him with Mesmero, who is another pretty obscure, or perhaps even more obscure of a uh, character insofar as X-Men lore is concerned than uh, Mentolo himself. The thing of it is, is uh, Mesmero had an X-Men trading card, which is where... I got a lot of my uh, foundational knowledge on X-Men history because, I mean, it was the early 90s. There wasn't reprints like there is now. There uh, there certainly wasn't a Marvel Unlimited. There really wasn't a whole lot of collected editions. The Essentials were still several years out. Of course, there were the uh, Marvel uh, Milestones or the, what, what were those things? The Masterworks. But those were 50 bucks each. And uh, as an 11-year-old kid, I was not getting $50 to buy a book. 
And uh, when it came to Christmas time, if I was going to get a $50 gift, it was probably going to be a video game rather than a book. So yeah, I didn't know a whole heck of a lot about the history, and uh, all I knew about Mesmero was what I got from the trading card. So Mesmero, Mentolo, Tomato, Tomato, I think I just conflated the two, and uh, maybe I subconsciously attributed more importance to both characters in my naivete and, uh, I don't know, lack of, uh, lack of knowledge, my ignorance, basically. So yeah, back to uh, my point here. We are all not so much fake-ass comics historians. We actually care about comics history. And if I have the opportunity to fill in any blind spots for uh, for myself as well as anybody listening, I, I love to do so. So that's pretty much what put it over the top for me uh, in as far as making the decision to cover this trilogy. And I don't expect these episodes to be listened to by very many people considering the obscurity and the lack of uh, actual X-Men. But... Uh, but for those who do, myself included, hopefully we'll learn a thing or two about a character who I think a lot of folks just recently met in uh, the Pages of Sword. So uh, let's get right into it. This, my friends, is Strange Tales, number 141, which had a February 1966 cover date. Stories called Operation Brain Blast, written and edited by Stan Lee, pencils Jack Kirby, inks Frank Ray, letters Sam Rosen, colors a double pen, I suppose, and a cover price of 12 cents. This is uh, only half the issue. The other half is a Doctor Strange story, which uh, we will not be covering. But uh, let's let's get into this uh, this Shield story. We open with our Silver Age spoilery splash page, in which Nick Fury is wearing a satellite dish on his head. It's very very bizarre stuff here. Um, now he is flanked by a pair of ne'er do wells, both of whom we'll be meeting for the first time here in this very story, but not until not until the end of it. They are the Fixer. And, uh, of course, the reason we're bothering to look at this story in the first place, Mentolo. Oh, and by the way, S.H.I.E.L.D. stands for Supreme Headquarters International Espionage Law Enforcement Division for this issue, and we'll have to see if that changes as we work our way through this, uh, this three-parter, because they seem to change what, uh, S.H.I.E.L.D. stands for, uh, pretty often these days. Um, anyway, our story opens at HYDRA HQ with the fallout of HYDRA's defeat in the previous issue. Fury and the S.H.I.E.L.D.sters corral the remaining agents. Now, Nick and Dum Dum are paying particular attention to a pretty young thing named Laura Brown, who's also known as Agent G. Turns out she's the daughter of Imperial Hydra, Arnold Brown. But here's the thing. Despite being one of the baddies, she apparently saved Nick Fury's bacon in the previous story, helping him to escape from captivity. Nick suggests that Laura stays with the rest of the Hydras while he heads upstairs to take her father down once and for all. Well, she refuses to remain. She would like to see this through to the end. Now, Dum Dum's kind of annoyed that Nick even, Nick's even given her the choice in the matter, to which he is swiftly reminded that uh, without her intervention last issue, Fury himself would have likely been offed, and Hydra would have never fallen. And so, up the stairs they go. Unfortunately, the way is blocked by a solid steel door. And so, S.H.I.E.L.D. agent Gabe produces a diamond-tipped drill gimmick. And, I mean, this thing is, like, bigger than he is, so I'm not sure which pocket he was keeping it in. Um, anyway... Gabe does the thing and starts cutting his way through the door. Laura asks Nick to promise her not to harm her father when they find him. And, well, he can't make that promise because he's pretty sure Arnold's going to probably come at them with guns blazing. Now, after Gabe's done with the drilling, all that's left is for Dum Dum to wield his mighty hammer, a dull in year, maybe, uh, to uh, punch their way in. Meanwhile, we head a few flights up where Arnold Brown is readying to press the self-destruct button to send the entire building to Hades. 
stating that even in death, so long as he takes out Nick Fury and S.H.I.E.L.D., Imperial Hydra will be victorious. Here's the thing. He can't bring himself to push it because his daughter is still in the building. And even though she's gone soft on him, he can't bring himself to kill her. Just then, a pair of Hydra agents enter the room attempting to flee the S.H.I.E.L.D. scene. Upon seeing Arnold Brown, they assume that he's just some interloper. And despite him informing them that he's actually their leader, Imperial Hydra, well, they just ain't buying it. Uh, nobody's actually seen him without his costume, you see, and so they shoot and kill this uh, mustachioed gentleman. Then, using their suction shoes, they escape out the window. Hmm, suction shoes, you say? I wonder if those will come back around. Well, exactly three seconds later, Nick and the gang burst into Imperial Hydra's office. Seeing that her father's been shot dead, Laura is beside herself with grief. A couple of shieldsters take aim out the window and proceed to fire at the suction shoe escapees. Laura runs over to her father and cradles his dead body in her arms, crying out that all she ever wanted was for him to care about her. Dum-Dum ruins the moment by asking Nick what their plan is for Ms. Brown. He cites that if they let her go, well, the newspapers are going to have Fury's hide. Just then, Agent Gabe finds a pair of suction shoes in a closet and shows them to Fury. Which, after demonstrating what they can do, gives our colonel an idea. He gives the shoes to Laura, and he lets her escape. <laughs> and it's a really, really awkward page. Uh, there almost had to be a better way to do this, but it's, uh, it's what we get. Now you see, Nick has her try on the shoes and asks her to, quote, demonstrate what they can do. Once outside, walking down the wall of the building, she turns back and warns that, you know, hey, you know, I could probably escape right now. And Nick replies with a, yeah, no kidding, now get the hell out of here, sort of an answer. Dum-Dum goes against type and, uh, well, he realizes what Fury's actually doing here. And he reminds him that the press is going to have a field day with this. And uh, Nick suddenly doesn't care. He's, uh, <laughs> he's like, whatever, I look forward to it. Now, with that dangling threat out of the way for now, uh, Fury and the gang head back to HQ. With Nick and an Agent Jones leaving via a Hydra saucer which facilitates a cross-section look at Hydra HQ and their escape route. Now, from the top of Hydra HQ, which is basically a skyscraper, uh, there's a tunnel, like an elevator shaft, that goes down the building and into the underground, all the way to the harbor, through a decoy ship, and then finally to the open air. So, speaking a little bit of S.H.I.E.L.D. HQ, how about we, how about we go there? And let's join a, a Niles Nordstrom, the head researcher for S.H.I.E.L.D.'s ESP division. Now, he oversees three thinkers who were hooked up to this crazy-looking brainwave stimulator machine with blinders over their eyes. Now, they've been tasked with throwing their thoughts, and it's time to test their progress. Now, you see, they are to psychically warn Nick Fury that there's danger in that room. The danger being Niles Nordstrom himself with a rocket pistol, which he will unload into Nick if he doesn't get the psychic warning. Which seems a little bit extreme, does it not? Oh, well. Anyway, so silliness aside, we rejoin Fury as he's entered the ESP Division hallway. And, well, he is struck by the thoughts of the thinkers. And it hits him so hard that he drops to his knees. At which point, several satellite dish-wearing espers tackle him and put that stupid satellite dish on his head, too, like that we saw at the opening page. Now, Fury demands to know what the hell's going on, and I really can't blame him. Now, he's told that the ESP Division wanted to impress him with a demo. And, I mean, there's gotta be easier ways to do that, right? I mean, like, there are parlor tricks aplenty when it comes to mind reading, right? It should have been easier than that. Anyway, 
Now, this alarm wave that the thinker sent out didn't just affect Nick Fury, right? He, they, he, of course, he was affected by it, but it wasn't just him. In fact, we jump thousands of miles away where a certain mutant is awakened. Now, he immediately knows that S.H.I.E.L.D. is still going through with Operation Brain Blast, and, uh, well, now he knows that they found others to replace him in the testing. He sits up out of bed and places a gaudy scramble helmet on his head, and he reveals that he was born with the power to project his thoughts into images, and proceeds to give us the quick and dirty on his origin. You see, this fella joined S.H.I.E.L.D. for nefarious reasons. He wanted to use his mutant ability to gain control over the organization, but... Well, he was found out before he could actually do so, and so he escaped. But he's been keeping tabs on S.H.I.E.L.D. to see if they'd continue their ESP endeavors, and, well, yeah, yeah, they have. Now, our new friend vows to strike back at S.H.I.E.L.D. and destroy them, but knows that he can't do it alone. And so he lets his mind go blank while he searches for one who might help him, and he finds the Fixer. Now, The Fixer, you might be familiar with The Fixer from Thunderbolts, but uh, if you're not, he's kind of like Forge in a way. There's allegedly nothing he cannot make. And so we spend a couple of pages watching him use the items in his jail cell to facilitate his escape. Now, he somehow magnetizes his bed and fashions a gas mask and goggles out of uh, maybe the springs in his mattress. I don't know. He uses the rubber sheeting on his bed to create a rubber suit, and I, I did like did the fixer wet his bed or something? Was did he have a incontinence? Why does why did he have rubber sheets? Anyway, long story short, he escapes, and Mentalo, of course, is pleased, and he states that together they could rule mankind. We wrap up back at the ESP division where Nick Fury, no longer wearing the satellite dish, is chatting up Nordstrom. The nerd mentions that uh, their espers will be just as powerful as anyone who can genuinely read minds. To which, Fury says there ain't no such thing as someone who could read minds. Which makes me wonder, like, is he new or something? I, he lives here, right? The, the Marvel Universe? Oh well. Well, Niles corrects him, stating that not only is it a real phenomenon, but S.H.I.E.L.D. used to have one of them. And Fury is pretty freaked out, and he names Mentalo as the most dangerous guy in the world. Whether or not that's true will uh, remain to be seen, but that, my friends, is where we leave it. So let's talk about it here, and I feel like it's time to uh, pull the old uh, silly but fun um, descriptor out, because that's basically what this was here. This was very, very silly. Um, the pseudoscience and the the nebulous use of uh, Mentalo's uh, powers, it's very, very bizarre, and it's only going to get more bizarre as we move forward here. I have looked a few pages into the next chapter, and... Uh, it, it <laughs> What they're going to do with quote-unquote mental powers is uh, going to be kind of baffling, and I think we're going to have a lot of fun uh, playing with that and uh, and kind of taking it apart. But let's take the mentalo out of it for a minute and just uh, talk about the, the story we got here. I have not read very many Nick Fury stories, period, you know, regardless of the era or uh, generation. So this is... Uh, basically new new ground for me to take a look at a Silver Age Nick Fury story, and certainly not something I would have ever saw myself doing willingly, <laughs> and uh, I suppose that's another reason why I was so excited to cover the Mentalo trilogy, because it would uh, broaden my horizons a little bit. I've literally never read these stories, and uh, I know a lot of people remember them with fondness. I just don't happen to be one of those people. 
I mean, we can go across the street to D.C. and think about the other, you know, uh, war-style books, you know, uh, Sergeant Rock, Enemy Ace, you know, those characters who also really never did much for me. In fact, if you've been following... um, I'm following my work. It sounds very, very uh, self-absorbed. But if you've been following what I do on the internet, you'll know that uh, I was uh, introduced to Blackhawk during the Action Comics Weekly, Action Comics Daily uh, deal over at Chris's on Infinite Earths, and I went into that with a little bit of trepidation because it just didn't seem like a... uh, It just wasn't something that I saw myself enjoying or even trying and, you know, I kind of forced myself to do it uh, as it was, you know, a completionist project. But turned out to be one of my favorite, if not my favorite, uh, strip from the entire Action Comics Weekly Endeavor. So, I, you know, it broadened my horizons. It opened my eyes. It uh, gave me an appreciation for a whole genre that I had uh, kind of dismissed. So... I guess this is kind of the Marvel version of that. And I gotta say, I'm happy that we uh, that we read it here and, and broadened at least my horizons. <laughs> Gave me a, uh, a little bit of an appreciation for these stories that I've never been able to glom onto. So it's nice to have uh, a nebulous tie to the mutants here. I mean, Mentalo is never called a mutant here. I'm not sure he's going to be called a mutant for this entire three-issue run. I'm not sure if this is something that they decided on after the fact when they realized that you know, making sure you added mutants to books was going to help them sell, or... I don't know, maybe you need to have, like, the mutant menace of Mentalo on the cover of whatever issue he's currently appearing in. I mean, that's probably how I'm going to share this episode. <laughs> I'm going to mention that he is a mutant. I'll probably use the mutant menace of Mentalo <laughs> in my description, just so uh, folks don't see it and like be like, why is he covering a, a S.H.I.E.L.D. story, you know, of, of all things? So it may just pique someone's curiosity enough to uh, hit download or play or uh, maybe just push in the heart. Who knows? <laughs> Either way, I, uh, I'm happy to have read this story and I'm happy to have shared it with, uh, with all of you. Hopefully this was, uh, this was new territory for, for many of us and uh, we're learning more and more about uh, the fringes of mutantum and uh, the X-Men universe here. But I think that's about all I have to say about the issue, which... Um, I guess that takes me to my final point about wanting to do this trilogy of issues because, somewhat selfishly, it's uh, it's going to be easy. <laughs> These three issues, I don't have letters pages for Strange Tales, and, and despite how much I love doing the letters pages, it does take a lot of time. So don't have to worry about that here. And since these are books that happened in uh, cover months that we've already covered in the X-Men book, bullpen bulletins are already done too, so... Less back matter here, which uh, makes for an easier easier few days for your humble host. But while we don't have letters for the issue, we do have mailbag for the show. So let's hop into those messages now. We're going to start with Joe Crawford talking about X-Men number 8. And he's got a numbered list. I love numbered lists. You guys know that when we do the letters pages and I see numbers. Oof, those are uh, my bread and butter right there. One. Stan is always busting Jack's chops about coiffures or coiffures. Hairdos. I don't know how to say coiffures. Stan should lay off or Jack's going to get bitter. And I I could just imagine their relationship at this point. Um, It's funny. Every time there's like a uh, a complaint, Stan is... (laughs) I mean, I love Stan, but uh, he's pretty quick to to push that blame. And uh, well, yes, he could be very self-depreciating as well. He's not shy about it. 
to Future Beast. My issue didn't have that. I'm going to write a letter. Future Beast. X-Men 8, huh? I remember we had like some weird temporal anomaly when I recorded that that I couldn't scrub from the episode. I, I don't know what it was all about. I don't I don't know what you're talking about, huh? Huh, Future Beast. Hmm, I don't know. Three, bring back Bobby's boots. Well, we got good news for you. Bobby's boots are back. And four, great episode. Well, thank you so much. Uh, the X-Men number eight episode, all jokes aside, was a lot of fun to do. As it, uh, I mean, Future Beast. Let's talk about Future Beast briefly, because uh, I want to keep up the gimmick that I don't know what that's all about. But um, bringing in the all-new X-Men number one material was uh, was really fun, because... Even I had forgotten how early in the X-Men run that was supposed to have taken place, you know? I think I always subconsciously placed Beast's arrival back in the past somewhere in the 20s or 30s. I never thought it was as early as issue number 8, which is funny for a number of reasons, because uh, I'm not even sure Bendis was able to figure out how briefly they were a team before they were shuffled into the future here, because when he brought them into the present... It was as though they were together for a very long time. And while Marvel time did work differently back then, of course, I think issue five was their one-year anniversary or something like that. So we might be two years into their into their teamdom at this point. Of course, sliding timescale, all that, it was probably like three or four weeks at most. But it's funny, I read or reread X-Men Prime uh, about a week ago. I was uh, waiting for a dentist appointment. And I pulled up X-Men Prime. I'm considering taking a look at the color books again. I'm not sure what form that's going to take. But, I, you know, I do want to fill in that, uh, that blind spot. And uh, in that, the, uh, the original five, the time-displaced original five, become the X-Men Blue, you know, cast. And Jean Grey is their leader. And Beast mentions something like, Oh, it's a long time coming that you were leader. And when you stop to think of it, it's like, well, no... <laughs> I mean, you could feel whatever way you want to feel about Gene being leader, if it's a good thing or a bad thing or an indifferent thing, but a long time coming, no, no, they really haven't been a team that long. They were pulled out of the past in X-Men number eight, you know, and again, sliding timescale, who knows, but uh, with all that aside, uh, yes, covering X-Men number eight the way that we did here on the show was a lot of fun, and it... uh, I had to actually reel myself back because I didn't know how far I was going to go with that gag. I mean, for all I know, that was going to be like a seven-hour episode where I just covered everything. And, uh, I mean, you never know. It might uh, There might be a remastered edition at some point in the uh, foreseeable future. But uh, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to listen and write in, Joe. It really, really means a lot to me. Next, we got a letter from Jeremiah who's talking about episodes 26 and 27 of the show, which were uh, X-Men 19 and 20, so the final Stanley issue and uh, the first Roy Thomas issue. Jeremiah says, Chris, still enjoying the show, and I wanted to comment on a couple of things from the recent episodes. In X-Men number 19, Stanley's last issue, he introduces the mimic. I thought it was a really well-done story, at least compared to some of the others. Like the issue with The Stranger, it's a one-shot where a lot happens. And yes, I know a lot happens in all these stories, but this one felt more in-depth to me. We get a new character and villain, one remarkably powerful. There's some good story with him meeting the different X-Men, his backstory, his moving in, etc. Sure, it's all contrived Silver Age nonsense. Beneath it all, though, I think there are some really good points. I mean, if Stan had left the ending a little more nebulous rather than having Chuck save the day and put an end to it all, you really could have gone back to that mimic well quite often. And you're right, yeah, they uh, they really could have done more with the Mimic. They will eventually do some more with the Mimic, probably 
10 or 15 issues from now I think uh, I think it's in the early 30s That the Mimic will make his, uh, his comeback And I think it'll be at the behest Of Professor X I, I don't remember the finer details of it But I know he does Become an X-Man I, I don't know the ins and outs of the story It's been at least 20 years Since I've read it But uh, we will get there We will get there soon enough And um, yeah, having having Chuck come in to save the day I mean, that's just the uh, That's the Stan Lee Formula for X-Men comics It's something we've talked about a lot in the show It's like you have the X-Men do their thing They come up just short Professor X, you know you know, does the ding a ding a ding wriggles his nose and everything is uh everything's fine. You know, he fixes everything. Jeremiah continues. There could have been a series of stories with him trying to kidnap some of Marvel Universe's top scientist characters like Reed Richards or Tony Stark to get him to finally fix that machine that would make his powers permanent. You could have sent him to supervillain prison where he takes one of the powers of the other prisoners and they all break out. I just think with a little effort they could have used the Mimic more effectively like they did with Magneto and the Blob, and you get my point. I know there's really no reason to quibble about this stuff now, I just thought this story particularly had a lot of good material and possibilities. It's the kind of story that my brother and I would have read as kids and we would have made up all kinds of adventures and what-if stories. Oh, I agree 100%. I remember uh, back in my youth, uh, I didn't know much about the Mimic outside of what I saw on a trading card. I mean, that... I've said it a few times, even this episode The trading cards is where I got a lot of my uh, 101 data for these characters And they didn't have a Mimic action figure Because, uh, well, Mimic was, he was dead and he was staying dead Back in the mid, uh, early to mid-90s So I had to go with a Morph action figure Folks will probably remember Morph from the animated series He got an action figure And I think this was around uh, the Age of Apocalypse time Where I found out that, uh that Morph was actually the Changeling, and the Changeling, kind of like Mesmero and Mentalo, I kind of conflated the Changeling and Mimic. You know, I kind of uh, made them the same guy, and then had this Morph action figure, so Morph became kind of my de facto Mimic character. And I recall crafting some, uh, well, probably very bad stories, but uh, I had fun. So <laughs> that was all that really, uh, all that really mattered. But yes, your point is is very well taken there. In the next issue, Roy Thomas's unremarkable debut, you went in-depth on Stan Lee calling out the competition in the bullpen bulletins. Personally, I'm all for it. He's the editor, and he's entitled to his opinion about other publishers and the industry as a whole. If you're going to publish an editorial page in your periodical, I would expect a good editorial comment. Totally agree, 100%. Jeremiah continues, If you think the guys at DC are publishing Drek, then say so. Give them what for. Think the folks at Harvey are ridiculous trying to publish the five millionth issue of Sad Sack? <laughs> With nothing but one-page gags that are a waste of paper and ink? Tell them. And oh, jeez, those Sad Sacks. I still see those things in the quarter bins. Uh, anytime I go to a uh, cheapo bin, there is a stack of Sad Sacks in there, and it's definitely the kind of book that I see uh, Stan kind of lashing out at here. Uh, Jeremiah continues. I think that if there's going to be news and commentary page in a comic where Stan tells us about all the new comics to buy, if he wants to tell us why he, we should not buy those other comics, then that's perfectly acceptable. Whoever was in the EIC position over at DC could have had the same kind of relationship with the fans that Stan had if they wanted to, but that wasn't really how DC or the other companies did business at the time. Stan was front and center for the product and the fans, so as far as I'm concerned, he was allowed to use his pulpit as he saw fit. And I agree 100%. Uh, Stan was the face of uh, Marvel Comics, the voice of Marvel Comics. And DC really didn't have that. 
I think they'd tried doing that with uh, Julia Schwartz, but it would never came off the same as Stan, you know? Julia Schwartz was never, you know, for lack of a better term, family. Stan always felt like, like a pal, you know, a, a family member where folks over at DC felt like executives, like stuffed shirts, you know, like who's going who's gonna to want to talk to Mort Weisinger? Certainly not me. That dude sounds like a jerk, right? Um, but I definitely agree with you here. Stan was doing something that none of the other publishers were going to do. This, he was changing the dynamic between, between fans and professionals. Uh, you know, I mean, we can discuss whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing, especially as we move into you know, the present, but let's not. <laughs> um, but Stan was uh, dropping truth bombs here. He was being upfront with his uh, opinions on the rest of the industry and... Hey, more power to him. I'm all in for it, and I'm looking forward to uh, I'm looking forward to more for sure. It's stuff like that that makes the bullpen bulletins page so much fun to cover, and uh, I think it's one of the things that make this show unique. You know, in that we do cover all that gestalty goodness. It honestly wouldn't surprise me if folks just listened for the back matter. <laughs> you know, not caring about the X Men story. And hey, if that's the case, that's cool too. Um, definitely, if that's what you're doing, let me know. <laughs> I'd love to hear from you. But that's gonna do it for today. If anybody out there would like to get a hold of me for any reason, feel free to do so. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can call into the X Lapse voicemail hotline at six two three three nine six jerk. For blog posts and show notes, you can head to chrisoninfiniteearths.com. Our little Facebook group is 90s X-Men. And for the entire archives, you can head to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available everywhere the internet aggregates noise. But that's going to do it for today. I would like to thank you all so much for sharing your time with me as we take this weird little sidebar into the mutant menace of Mentalo. I hope you had as much fun with it as I did. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.